Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review Presents with Donovan and Ken. This is uh, episode 375. No, we're not, we're not messing with the numbering. Recorded October 16th, 2022. And for our inaugural Presents episode, we are doing Stargate Atlantis, a miniseries called Wraithfall. Right. And it's just the right length. Three episodes or three issues, I should say. Three issues, yeah. Indeed. And uh, these take place, uh, if you're a fan of the show, um, during the first season. So, like, in the first half of the first season. So, it's somewhere between episode two and eight, I think, is what it says. Um, At this point, I think they're still on their own. They haven't been able to get connected back with uh, the rest of humanity, I think. And... um, they are figuring their way out in the Pegasus Galaxy. So. And if you're not a fan of Stargate, uh, like myself, um, but you're still a fan of Star Trek, uh, these still work. Uh, they, they really have that Star Trek vibe to them, so it, it fits nice. I, I agree with that. Uh, I, when I first saw the first movie, I mean, the only movie, in the movie theaters, it was like, oh, this is like Star Trek. Um, you know, we got the, we got the, the away team going to an alien planet and they get in trouble and then they get separated and it's like, oh my God, this is, this is like a Star Trek episode. Only, you know, obviously not so far in the future and yeah, (laughs) yeah, bigger budget. Now, correct Um, me if I'm wrong. Did Stargate come out before Independence Day or... Oh, I think so. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, so Stargate is where those two guys. I think that's where they got, got their on start. The mm-hmm. So what? Uh, Dexter, Dexter, Devlin. Yeah, Devlin and and then the uh, other one, the director, uh, yeah. who's Jeez. done a whole bunch of other things. Right. Emmerich okay. or something like that. That's it, Roland Emmerich. Yeah, there you go. Anyway. So those guys were the yeah. partners that did, did both of those movies. Now, did they have anything to do with the TV show aside from just okaying it? No. Well, I, I think they might have had some early involvement in the development of it. But basically, they went off on their own um, own with it. I mean, the, the creators. Right. And, and the creators, if I, if I, ha- I think I have this correct... Um, the SG-1 creators of the TV show uh, were the guys that did the Outer Limits reboot, or kind of like modern upgrade. And some of those Outer Limits episodes were really good, um, I thought. Right. Um, and they brought, they brought that really good, uh, I th- again, my opinion, uh, that really good um, high-quality writing, I think, into the development of the TV series. And I, and I think whatever involvement that Roland and Dean Devlin, Dean Devlin had in it uh, kind of fell on the wayside. 
because they went off on their own direction. Right. And I, I'm not sure, but I think, I think partially because of the success of the TV show, which did pretty well on sci-fi, and then it moved over... What did it move over to? I forgot. It was on Showtime for a or, while. Oh, I'm sorry. I got it backwards. So it was on Showtime, and then it moved to Sci-Fi Channel. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, I think to some degree, the success they had with the TV series might have in some ways hampered the second movie. Because they, they had a, the second movie in development for a while. That they never made, obviously. Yeah, it would be hard to have those characters exist in two different mediums at the same time and definitely what this is what i read um definitely what roland and dean had in mind for the second uh movie was very different from what happened the tv show so i agree with you it would have been difficult to have both continuities that did not agree with each other at all right coexist yeah little different than like what you know, Superman and Smallville was on, the movies and the and the uh, TV show was on at the same time, but they right. were two different universes, and they weren't based on each other. They were based on comic books that had been around for seventy years. So right. that's a little different. You could have two continuities that way, whereas a TV show that's supposed to be a continuation of the movie, mm-hmm. and then a movie having a sequel, which is a continuation of that, but they're not they're not uh, the same. Would be very hard, very hard. It, but if it was done well, it wouldn't matter. If it made money, wouldn't matter. People would go with it. I mean, how many times did they reboot Spider Man and 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 Batman? Yeah, I, mean, they, I think I think you got to hit you hit it right on the head there. Making money because exactly. I mean, we saw how well Serenity did. Oh, the movie. Yeah, it didn't, unfortunately. Exactly. But that was that was a continuation of the TV show. Right, but I mean, yeah. but. I mean, unless you're Star Trek, you can't. No other show has really been able to jump over there and make a really successful movie franchise. Uh, I mean, in my opinion, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I thought the Brady Bunch did pretty good. <laughs> well, that was a reboot, though, not a continuation. Oh, pfft. the Brady Bunch episodes were beyond episodic. <laughs> and the movie was kind of a, a farce. Oh yeah, it was a farce. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, I think we're off topic. We we're very talk off about, topic. We've got three comic books to talk about, so we need this. We do, and they're not necessarily short per se. So depending upon how much you found to talk about it, um, this could either go fast or not. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and just so that you know, guys, uh, this, these were released by a company called Avatar. Yes. Uh, Which is, I'm confused. So it's Avatar, and also there's uh, credit given to Pulsar? What's Pulsar? Uh, they might be part of the same company. Okay. Because if you look at the covers, and there are many covers, uh, it's got both Avatar, which is the main comp- publishing company, and then there's that other Pulsar logo. Pulsar, right. And I was a little confused at first which was really the publisher, but I guess it's Avatar. A- Avatar is definitely what what it's always listed as being as the publisher. Okay. Uh, cool. I don't know what Pulsar is. But anyways, but Avatar, they their bread and butter was um, licensed um, comics. You know, they were kind of like a, a Dark Horse or a IDW type thing. But uh, but where I think Gold they key. messed up, yeah, where I think they messed up is that they just produced an ungodly number of uh, 
covers. Mm. So I think that was how they were going to make money. We're going to sell 17 issue number ones to everybody because we have 17 different covers. And and I'll be honest, uh, they did RoboCop and stuff like that. So I have a lot of the same issue, but I never did it on purpose. It was because I went back to the comic book store six months later and there's a, a number one on on the shelf and i'm like oh they're they got a With new, the new cover going. yeah new cover yeah go home you start start reading it and you're like oh this is the same issue from six months ago so uh but with a new cover with Yay. a new cover and it, and it's just uh, so uh yeah so there is a lot of covers for these and uh i don't think avatar even exists anymore to tell you the truth hmm. they had the line for um but I mean, like they had a ton of like horror stuff, like Freddy, Jason, Leatherface, and then. But now I don't. I don't even think they exist. I haven't seen anything from them in a long time. Hmm. Which is kind of too bad because. I think this mini series is pretty good. Uh, yeah. Good art. Good artwork. I mean, not absolutely the best in the world, but pretty good. And the story was, I thought, it was really good. Uh, really captured the TV series well. Um, so if this is an example of the kind of quality they had, I, I think they had a quality product. They always did have high-quality artwork, mm-hmm. uh, but I will say this is the tamest uh, Avatar comic I've ever read. Because this oh. feels like a DC or a Marvel okay. Star Trek book, right? Okay. Whereas it looks like the TV show. Okay. Whereas all their other stuff is always... Very scantily or undressed women, yeah, uh, things like that. With, uh, I mean, even when it doesn't even make sense, like some of those Robocops and stuff. I mean, I guess the Freddy ones and stuff. Like, yeah, they have that's that's a horror trope. Mm-hmm. But I mean, but some of the other times, it's just like this really seems odd. And why would these people be wearing these clothes? Yeah, <laughs> they're not pra- they're not practical at all. And why is it so damn cold there? <laughs> or not cold, <laughs> warm? Yeah, but. Uh, uh, yeah. But anyways, it's just uh but no, I really like the artwork. It really felt like it felt like reading a a Star Trek book, right? Yeah. It, the characters looked like the actors and yep. uh, you knew what was going on. Yep. Uh every, pretty much every panel was, you know, they took the time to really try to look like the original TV actors. So good good job there. And the ships look good. Um I like it. Shall we begin? Well, go ahead and start. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So, uh, depending on how you count it, there's either there's either seven or eight covers in this one, um, because there's a black and white version um, that I saw. Uh, I believe in this in the comic that um, th- that shows up in the second issue. I think uh, in color. So I'm not sure if that's if if I counted one too many, but whatever. The main point is um, most of these are pretty well drawn uh, and colored comics, uh, but they also have some. They also have at least one photo cover in each one of these. Actually, two photo covers. So they usually have a group shot of the uh, the main characters in the cast uh, from the TV show, and then they focus on one individual character typically, uh, and then the rest are nicely done. Uh, drawings, paintings, whatever, by a variety of different people. So uh, Mauricio Mello does one, and he's, I think he's the guy, yeah, he's definitely the guy that does all the art inside, or the 
the pen work anyway, pencils and, and whatever. Um, and then Ryan Drake did another one. And I think Ryan does a lot of the other ones too in the other issues. Uh, Lu- Lucio Rubira does one, which is a night. I think that's a painting. Um, anyway, so lots of covers. And I'm not going to go into the details. <laughs> it takes too long. Dr. Rodney McKay spends a page bringing the reader up to speed on what a, what a Stargate is and what he and his exploratory SG team are doing knocking around the Pegasus galaxy these days. He does that sort of like a captain's log, but actually it's notes from his upcoming biography titled, of course, My Brilliant Life in Atlantis. The always humble Dr. McKay is concise and demeaning in his note-taking. It's early days of the SG team's residency in the uber-high-tech city-slash-spaceship left behind by the ancients. Today, the team is led by Major Shepard, and they transition to a planet where they stumble upon a group of wraiths having a meeting with humans, as opposed to their normal modus operandi, that involves kidnapping them violently from their planet. It's called a culling uh, in, the, in the series. The human leader says they are sacrificing five of their finest citizens to their gods, the wraiths. These idiots, apparently suffering from Stockholm Syndrome to the max, actually think the wraiths are their gods as opposed to what they really are, malevolent hunters who violently take humans for food from any planet they can find them on. The leader puts a medal called a Medallion of Kara around his own son's neck and asks the wraith if they will accept his son as the first offering for this night of wraithfall. The wraith plays along with this simpleton and says, yes. The son is immediately beamed up to one of the many wraith dart ships above. The other humans in the area cheer for their sacrifice being accepted by their gods. Shepard, Leela, and Rodney cannot believe what they are witnessing. A young woman is next to get a medal and gets beamed up. Shepard and Taylor have had enough. Shepard gives the word to intervene over Rodney's objections, calling for caution. Shepard and the team, with guns up, tell the wraith to move away from the people. Suddenly, the people attack the SG team. They apparently do not like it when people are messing with their gods. They are able to grab the latest medallion of Kara winner before he can be beamed up and escape through the gate. On the way out, a wraith stunner hits the medal winner in the leg. Back in the Atlantis gate room, the medallion holder is pissed. Their wraith fall was interrupted. He was supposed to go with his gods, for Christ's sake. Dr. Weir enters the room and asks for a briefing. They take the medallion holder to the infirmary to treat his leg, where they found out his name is Dak. Weir asks him to explain what Wraithfall is, and he obliges. His people came to an agreement with the Wraith hundreds of years ago to stop the random cullings in exchange for a number of their people being given up voluntarily. Over the years, it became a ritual called Wraithfall. It is a great honor to be chosen for Wraithfall. Before the Wraith, 
They worshiped beings like Weir and Shepherd, but they departed and never came back. When the wraith arrived, they filled a need. Dax says he needs to go back, or the wraith will or the wraith may kill all of his people. Shepherd suggests maybe he and his people can try something different. They can try to fight the wraith. Dr. Beckett gives Dak a checkup and a sedative to give Weir a chance to assess the situation. Dr. Weir calls a meeting with her senior staff. She says they may not have the right to keep Dak from wraithfall, to which Shepard objects strongly. It was through his and the SGE team's actions that they woke the wraith prematurely from their long hibernation cycle. He says if he can save people from being wraith food, he's going to do it. And he wants to do it very badly. Rodney asks the question, why would the wraith bother with wraithfall? They can just do what they have done on every other planet in the sector. Just call the planet and take what they want. Taylor agrees there must be something more going on here. This is against the wraith's nature. Shepard says he can take a puddle jumper back to the planet in a few hours when it's night and do some recon. Rodney warns that the wraith darts they saw are short-range craft. There is likely a hive ship in the system somewhere, and if Shepard continues, he could become the wraith's midnight snack. Though she does not like it, Weir agrees to it, and Shepard takes off to prepare. After Shepard is gone, Rodney reports to Weir that he recently corrected a power node issue that could have disabled the Stargate if it was not for his brilliance. Shepard transitions his puddle jumper through the Stargate and comes out into Planet Kara's night sky. He flies over the village where nothing is happening. He records what appears to be an encrypted wraith transmission, which he forwards through the gate to Atlantis. Just as he finally decides to return, three wraith darts swoop in behind him. They open up fire on the puddle jumper. Deft, evasive maneuvers avoid the initial volley, and Shepard returns fire. One dart is dusted, but one of the remaining two darts gets a lucky hit on their follow-up attack. The puddle jumper goes down hard. We're in the team back in Atlantis. Hear all of it. Puddle jumpers are tough little ships, but the lack of a signal from the Major has Weir wondering what her next move will be to deal with two difficult situations. To be continued. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. So, a morally difficult situation. Uh, yeah. Too bad there's no prime directive to give her some sort of guidance. <laughs> yeah, there are, so we talk about how, how Stargate is kind of like um, Star Trek to some degree. I mean, there's, there's, some, there's some commonality. But uh, they're doing the opposite of the Prime Directive. They're getting involved. And right. um, in, this, in, in the Pegasus galaxy, or at least the part of the galaxy that Atlantis is in, and they're beginning to explore, these Wraith are the... At the top of the food chain, and people on many planets are just cattle, basically. Right. And here, these people from Earth come, and they don't like this one bit. So, but what do they do? And and that is a theme that is very strong in this uh, three issue series, and I like it. Right. 
Yeah, just, I, I have not watched Stargate Atlantis. I've watched maybe the first half of the first season just just to prepare for this episode. Uh, do they stay the main bad guys, the Wraith, throughout the whole series, or do do we find new bad guys to worry about? Um, there are new bo- bad guys that pop up, but the Wraith are a constant. Okay. Okay. No, yeah, so, uh, so the final issue, I think it went five seasons? So the final really long, uber-long episode was completely in conflict with Wraith. Okay. So they're like their Klingons. They are definitely like the Klingons. Yeah, as far as the makeup go, I mean, and, and the drawings here of the Wraith, uh, they do look really cool, I think. Mm-hmm. I think they did a, a good job on that aesthetic. Yeah. I, they're basically vampires. Right. So they make them look ghoulish and frightening, uh, but they got to make them so they're not vampires. Not really. So. Right. Yeah, they're still vampires. They just don't have all the vampire tropes, but exactly. they're vampires. Yeah. So they don't have fangs, but they've got really nasty, pointy, almost like Klingon warrior teeth. Right. Yeah, like little shark teeth. Yeah. So um, so as far as the story goes, uh, and, and I texted you this, and I guess you don't agree, but uh, this really felt like uh, the same story as uh, Saru and his people in Star Trek Discovery, where they basically mm-hmm. built up a whole religion on eventually getting, becoming food for another race. You know, it's just... No, I, I agree with that. But I don't think you... I thought what you meant in your rather relatively short text is that... Well, you hadn't read the book yet, so that's why I didn't want to go into too much. Detail. Okay, and that, that's cool. I appreciate that. Uh, I thought you meant that Saru, or that the Wraith remind you of Saru. That's uh, what I uh, thought I you meant, so I misunderstood what you yeah. I, I misunderstood what you meant. Okay. Yeah, no, what I meant was that uh, these people like Dax, um, mm-hmm. they, they kind of, again, like, like Saru's people, mm-hmm. they know they're going to be food at some point, so might as well create like, this whole religion and make, make being selected an honor as opposed to, you know... Uh, fighting it or mourning the losses of the of the people who get yeah cold that's a really that's a really good point that's a really good point yeah but this guy takes it i mean even the guy that they they save Mm -hmm. uh i mean all he can think about is going back to be eaten (laughs) yeah and and, And, and is it even true does he know he's going to get eaten or does he just think he got selected and he's going to get beamed up I don't know that they know what happens to people. I right. think they just... Um, I, they may suspect, but I don't think they fully know. Right. But, but as we'll find out at the end, maybe it doesn't matter. Anyway, well, I yeah. don't want to ruin uh, the end. I mean, and the, the whole idea of it, I mean, it, it does make sense. I mean, they're going to come and take so many people anyways. Might as well, you know. If you can minimize the number. Right, minimize the number and not fight back and have this whole religion thing instead instead of brute force. Right, it's just another way. Why does it have to be religion, though? Wow, I mean they they didn't have they they could have this deal with the wraith without it being religion, but it's it's religion. Yeah, but then then people might not see it as an honor. What is like? Oh, the government's going to come and take you. Oh, it's so great to be chosen by the (laughs) government. You know, so I mean, but but when you talk about religion. 
or yeah. cults or whatever, then you get that idea of, oh, this is a great honor. I'm being selected by the, sure. the leader, you know, sure. to go and ascend yeah. to the next stage of evolution or whatever. So, yeah, yeah that's why I kind of like the idea of it being a, a manipulating people through religion versus manipulating people through force, which is what we well usually see in the TV show with the Wraith. Yeah. Right. And, and and definitely, at least in human history, societies, the people in charge, they're always trying to manipulate their people and get them to go with the program. And sometimes that's executed through religion. Some that Sometimes that is executed through uh, some sense of patriotism. Um, all different ways that uh, <laughs> that the people in charge manipulate us. Yes. Right, right. Yep. Now, now I will say, though, that patriotism, especially in the U.S., is a strong motivator for people, and it has nothing to do with religion. But there you go. Right. Yep, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So what do you think? Um, as far? Yeah, I like it a lot. Cool. Uh, I like the artwork. The artwork, again, looks just like the actors. Mm-hmm. I mean, like we mentioned earlier. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't really have anything bad to say about it. I mean, mm-hmm. especially this first issue, because I don't want to spoil anything that's going about to, about sure. to happen. It's it's a setup issue. Yeah. Although, I mean, some, some action things happen in it, but it really is kind of setting things up. Sure. I thought in the arc work area, completely agree with you. And I particularly just want to call out the crash of the puddle jumper. Mm-hmm. I, thought that, I thought that looked really good. And gave a, a good feeling of kinetic uh, energy <laughs> when it crashed. So I, I think that was good. And plus it says, crash. <laughs> so there you go. You got wording in big right. yellow stylized uh, font. Now, one of the things I do kind of not, not 100% clear on um, is the weaponry of the puddle jumpers. Mm-hmm. Yes, let's so talk about that. In the pilot... He, mm-hmm. where he uses the weapons, the missiles and stuff, mm-hmm. he's able to just kind of like control them with his mind mm-hmm. linked up to the Atlantean yes. technology. Mm-hmm. Where here, he didn't do any of that. So I was wondering if... How do you know he didn't do it? That? Well, I don't see... I, mean, I guess I see one of their ships blowing up. It just seems like the missiles were much more powerful in that first pilot because he took out like a whole bunch of ships. Where I, here, I, he only took out one. I think that, like in most things... Weapons are only as powerful as a story needs it to be, but I completely agree with you. So the ancients, which, which are the gate builders, very advanced civilization, advanced technology. I mean, they built the gate system for Crypedes. Uh, and they ha- but they also have ships, and their ships have weaponry, and their main weaponry are these things that are kind of like photon torpedoes, but they're guided, and they've got uh, an organic component to them. And, um, you know, at times you're completely right. They're very powerful. Um, and Shepard is able to use, I guess, uh, uh, well, a gene that is in his genome. And it's, it like happens in like some fraction of a percentage of human beings on the earth, supposedly, where it is a gene in common with the ancients. And it allows right. Shepard to um, operate their, their technology. 
Right. Um, yeah, so does that mean that we humans are descendants of the ancients and that uh, this is a genetic trait that has been passed down from them? Uh, yeah, um, I forgot all the details, but basically what we're seeing in the Pegasus Galaxy is the ancients left the Milky Way, went to the Pegasus Galaxy. I don't remember all their motivations for doing it, but they did. Um, and when they got there, they seeded the Pegasus Galaxy with um, basically humans. Okay. Um, and they look like humans, although they don't speak, at least supposedly. They just, they like, they just read each other's minds or something. So, um, and then the Wraith were accidentally created by the ancients. And they found a ready-made... So... So the wraith are made up from the crossing of humans and a uh, a bug that was on one of the planets <laughs> uh, that they seeded humans on. Um, so it yeah. all comes from the ancients, and then then the wraiths were able to develop enough uh, and at least technology enough to challenge the ancients and and finally defeat them. Right. Okay. All right. I mean, and you say that the uh, the human they they seeded the galaxy with humans um, in mean, the Pegasus Dax, galaxy. Isn't Dax one of those? I mean, he, he yeah, they look yeah. very human. He's but one they of talk. them. I don't know what you're saying about not talking. Do they meet a meet a mute? You oh no, that, I'm talking about the ancients. The ancients don't. Oh, speak. Oh, the ancients don't speak. Okay, not 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 the humans. Gotcha. Okay, and okay. and Tila, she's she's from a different uh, planet. Okay. Right. Where they seeded humans. And so I'm going to say this quickly since we brought her up. I mean, she's basically Neelix. So, right. in Voyager. So, she knows the lay of the land. Uh, she's been t- through the gates to other planets that have humans. And uh, because all these planets that have humans also have a gate. So. I mean, and so she knows all about the wraiths because, of course, the wraiths have called her people. Countless times, and the wraiths basically cull a planet as much as they want, and they always make sure they leave enough humans to repopulate. And they, right. they like do a round robin thing or whatever. So you'll get a break for a while so you can repopulate, but they'll be back. We are cattle to yep. them. That's, that's just good farming right there. <laughs> <laughs> and another p- piece of detail is that. Uh, at a certain point, they hibernate. So all of them hibernate. And I don't remember right. how long, but um, they'll hibernate. And while they're in hibernation, then the populations get really big. And then when they wake up, they are hungry critters. And then they, they go on their, uh, their culling rampage. Right. So, and one of the big things is, as you saw in the, in the premiere episode, the pilot, whatever, um, Shepard and his team uh, accidentally wake them up uh, ahead of time. Right. So that, that, that makes it even more drama in that they feel responsible for waking these, these monsters up. So right. even more so, they want to try to do something to uh, save these people from the wraith. Because not only are they hungry, now they're grouchy for getting woken up too early. <laughs> And you don't want to deal with a grouchy wraith. All right. What, what do you have about the issue itself? 
Um, I thought they did a really good job with, uh, with the characters in general, but I, I think they really did a good job with Shepard and McKay in particular. So I just want to talk a little bit about McKay. So McKay's personality was well captured here, I think. So he's a brilliant scientist that knows it, and he's frequently short with people that aren't up to his intelligence level. So he's a little bit of a, you know, he, he's a little bit of a pain in the butt to the people he works with on his team, on his, on his science team, and then, uh, you know, with everybody else. And he's also a bit of a coward, uh, not much of a fighter, huh? And he's a little bit of a comic relief in the, in the he, show, I think. He's definitely comic relief. Um, right. The actor who plays Rodney is really is really good with the comedy. Um, also, another interesting de- detail: he's constantly he's eating a lot. He eats a lot, and he and he and he oddly comments about his blood sugar levels. So I don't remember them ever saying that he that he had diabetes, but um, he seemed to be over fixated on his sugar levels. So who knows? Mm. Um, Okay, so the last thing to say about the McKay character, he originally came up on in SG-1, so he was uh, like a guest starring guy, and he was a bad guy. So he was a scientist that was brought to the SGC to undermine them by a, um, a politician that was trying to shut down the SGC. So... Um, you know, he originally came out as a came on as a bad guy, but then they went ahead and when they started up the Atlantis show, they uh, they took the character, um, and they made him into a good guy, although an annoying guy. Um, and so there's a lot of ways that he kind of reminds me a bit of the Tom Paris Nick Lacarno thing from uh, from between uh, Star Trek: Next Generation and Voyager. But they okay. didn't have, they didn't change his name. So he's the same character, same name. Um, so it just, Paris kind of reminds me of him, mm. what they did with the character. Right, I can see that. My last comment, and maybe I just, it's been a while since we read this. Um, was there a thing about the people being so close to a volcano? Yeah. The volcano comes in very handy, doesn't it? Uh, what in the next issue? Uh, um, I think it's, I, it's the third issue, but oh, third issue. But I mean, okay. but do they? Mean, I mean, they show the volcano here, but in the dialogue, do they ever say like, "Hey, these people are about to get killed by a volcano"? No, or something? no, no I don't think so. Because there is one shot of him flying the puddle jumper, and you see a volcano that's that's erupting, and then right. Right in the path of the, or right at, almost to the summit of the volcano is this little village. In uh, this issue, the volcano is erupting? It looks like it is. I mean, it has smoke and fire coming out of it. Uh, okay. But they never mention it. Okay, I'm That I remember. It. It's on... Oh, I see it. I see what you're saying. Yeah, right before he crashes. Yeah, boy, that is a stupid idea. Okay, so, oh, boy. Okay, so apparently this is a volcanically active uh, planet, but you're completely right. I completely missed that. Yeah, so that's really stupid to put a um, to put a village that close to a volcano. But what we see in well, I guess issue three. I didn't. I guess in issue three is where we see it. Although I thought it was two, but I guess it's three. Um, that can't be the same volcano. 
because they okay we're getting into the uh, into a future issue <laughs> all right well we'll just well, leave let's, it at let's that. keep this in mind it'll <laughs> when we come up to it yeah just put a put a pin in that put a pin in that <clears throat> all right so i'll go ahead and do issue number two this came out in november of 2006 um the story and art and this stuff is the same through all ken kind of skipped over it but uh i'll, I'll sorry about that quick. yeah no good problem. point uh, story is by Stuart Moore, art by uh, Mauricio Mello, uh, colors by Mark Sweeney, and then the editor is, or the editor in chief is William Christensen, and creative director is Mark Seifert. And this was uh, again released by uh, Avatar Press. All right, so like like before, tons of covers, very nice looking covers. I mean, you, any of these could be like a poster on your wall kind of thing if you were a big fan of the show. So uh, they, they go all out on their covers. They do look nice, even though I think there's too many of them. All right, so the story starts with McKay uh, informing Dr. Weir that uh, he got some of the alien tech running, including some holographic controls and things like that, and, and that they have located... Uh, the lost uh, Lieutenant Shepard. And then Weir says that Lieutenant Ford is going to be tasked with using the Stargate at some point to uh, mount a rescue. So meanwhile, on the planet of the Wraiths, or maybe in orbit of the planet, I wasn't quite sure, uh, we see that the uh, Shepard has been captured by the Wraiths, and the Wraiths are showing him how they use the humans from this planet. So unlike other Wraiths, these wraiths capture the people and they and they capture a, a smaller number than what the other wraiths do uh, and the way they get around that is that they are feeding on them for much longer much more prolonged and painful time so the other wraiths like a normal vampire go in kill them fast out and they're dead and but they're drained but these guys they kind of bleed over long periods of times in what looks like medieval torture racks and things like that so, uh, but that way they need fewer humans and they're able to come up with this quasi religion to keep the, uh, the humans happy all the way up until they start getting poked. They then start torturing Shepard and they put on a mind reading device on his head to try to learn the location of Earth. So Shepard is fighting it, but it's with great pain. Meanwhile, on Atlantis, the reluctantly rescued Dak is given a tour of Atlantis, and then he knocks out the doctor that was showing him around. He sabotages the generator and then uses the Stargate to escape back to home. And once he leaves through the Stargate, the uh, sabotage he did on the generator goes off, which then shuts out power to the Stargate, and, and the crew cannot open it until... Uh, this repair to the generator happens, and they say it's going to take quite a while. So meanwhile, Shepard is continually getting tortured, and we get little recaps of uh, the pilot movie, including we get to see the death of the T-1000 at the hand of the female wraith. So uh, as this is happening, as, he's, as we get the recap and he's continually getting tortured, Dak shows up. He's uh, turned himself in, and he's now all cap wrapped up in this like liquidy fluid. 
and uh, you can see that maybe in his eyes the honor of being uh, chosen is not is finally settling in on him. He doesn't look too happy to be there. In fact, he's making whimpering noises, and uh, then the the wraiths start to work on him. I guess it's kind of off screen, but we can see that Shepard's watching it. And he looks like he's feeling a little guilty about everything that's going on to poor Dak. And then Shepard is told by the Wraiths that uh, they are going to be quite ready when his friends arrive to rescue him. And then we get a little note to be concluded. Those are some brutal looking um, experiments, aren't they? Yeah, very medieval with a, basically an Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. I mean, if you're going to just bleed someone over a long period of time and that's kind of the way to do it and then inject inject them with um what stimulants um adrenaline whatever they said yeah and then and and then basically bring the death of the person to the point that the taste of their life force is enhanced for the wraith oh man <laughs> That's something. Yeah, it's kind of like you hear that certain people beat animals before they kill them and, and eat them because of Ooh. you know the adrenaline or something that makes it taste better. I've oh, heard man. it. I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, but uh, it's something I've heard before, and, and that's what I was thinking of when I was reading this. Is if that's what they were going for? That oh, that that makes it even worse. I mean, if people did that kind of thing, oh. I mean, because quite frankly, when Ronnie, when Rodney came up with the whole theory that they're doing the Wraithfall thing because they've got some kind of lab and they're experimenting on these people, it's like, I was, I was saying, wow, Rodney, brilliant. That's, that's pretty good at deduction. Um, but what the heck would Wraith be doing in a lab? I mean, they're really not, I don't, they're, they're kind of like Klingons. Who knows where they get their technology from? Because everybody seems to be a warrior. Right. Um, but apparently, as we find out with the Klingons, I mean, there are Klingons that are more nerdy book <laughs> engineers and, and scientists, too. Um, but these guys, I mean, they're vampires. Anyway, and then we find out that what they're really doing is basically it's a culinary school, and they're figuring out the best way to serve up human dinners. <laughs> but and it doesn't like, seem like that they're kind of makes sense with, with the rest of the race. It's kind of like this is, this is just how they do it. Well, how do you know? I don't know. Maybe they do. Yeah, I, I think it's complete. I think it's possible. I mean, I don't know one way or the other, but I think it's very possible that you know, yeah, they they are sharing this information with the broader wraith world. But throughout the series, the wraith pretty much take people's life force the same way, just like draw it out of their chest or something. Right. Anyway. Oh. Oh. Cracking the human food's head after being beaten, <laughs> after it being beaten almost to the point of death, makes it particularly tasty. I mean, this isn't a young kid's book. I could see parents being upset about this. <laughs> right. Which makes it edgy, and I like it as an adult. I think this is pretty good. This is not, this is not kid stuff. I mean, they're, right. they're willing to go into adult territory. And that may be part of what you said about what the publisher does, period. Right. Because I Maybe. don't know much about the, the, 
the books, but at the end of the book, you can see that they got a ton of covers for other uh, comic properties that they that they publish. Mm-hmm. And you're a hundred percent right. I mean, I see stuff there that kind of looks a little bit like Vampirella. I see things that look kind of like some kind of uh, Conan thing or Red Sonia thing. But uh, these people are not wearing much. Uh, ladies, I should say. They're all ladies. Right. With yeah. amazing proportions. Yeah, of course. Anyway, so Avatar <laughs> is fine with, uh, you know, doing stuff that would upset parents. Apparently. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of weird when I when I heard that uh, they did, they got the Stargate license. I was like, mm-hmm. well, that's really not in their wheelhouse. <laughs> but, right. But I didn't really know that much about Stargate at the time. Mm-hmm. So, aside from the movie, I watched the movie way back when. And I think I bought, like, a couple of the books mm-hmm. um, that was expanding the movie before the show came out. Mm-hmm. But I never got around to reading them. Mm-hmm. And then the show came out, and I'm like, eh, I'm, I'm out. I'm not going to even bother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sounds like I might have missed out, though, huh? Why? This... The two... Stargate franchise has been one of my go-to. Uh, yeah, TV series in general, and as far as the comic books are concerned, I really haven't been as familiar with the comics. Sure, but the franchise is a pretty good one, I think. Oh, another thing that's kind of funny here. Um, so you know they got <laughs> they got uh, Shepard in this like metal helmet thing that's bleeding him, and also somehow. Um, tapping into his mind and 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 of course as always they're trying to find out where's earth because they hear earth is just loaded with people and that you know hit the dinner bell uh yes billions of people yes you're right about that um and then he and then and then the wraith asks him yet again where's earth and then shepherd says it's in my pants want to look it's like that's a dick joke? Uh, Shepard did a dick joke in, in, in this comic book? That's <laughs> kind of racy. Is that not in his, is that not in his uh, nature in the show? Oh, no, he's joking. He just doesn't do dick jokes. I mean, he doesn't... I mean, that, that's kind of offensive. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, I mean, uh, between the beating... You know, the, the, the other, the beating people to the edge of death? No, you don't see any things like that in the TV show. Right. And as far as dick jokes, no, Shepard doesn't do dick jokes. He does a, he's sarcastic, and he's brave, and he'll try to make humor out of a bad situation but uh, to get through it. But uh, yeah, th- this book goes a bit further than the TV, <laughs> TV show ever did. Yeah, no, and, and speaking of beating, what is, I mean, I get the Iron Maiden thing, yeah. which is what looks like they put Dak in, Yeah. but what's the other thing? So it looks like they wrap you up in what looks like meat or some sort of <laughs> fleshy thing, and then they have just like these metal tumblers that just smack yeah. into you over and over again. They're like, they're like metal cylinder kind of things that are hooked up to something that's kind of like an arm or something and then they they beat you to they beat you almost to death so they're they're contusions and they're breaking your bones and they're basically like with one of those meat mallets 
you know, beating on the meat. Of course, that's after the meat. The, per, the you know, the animal's dead, right? And, and the meat is removed, and it's almost like taking one of those uh, mallet meat tenderizers and just beating the crap out of it. But right. this is when you're still alive. Yeah, and they show it on that one guy, and he's like, "Yeah, oh. <laughs> oh there's that's blood horrible. spurting everywhere and stuff." It's like, Oof. yeah, it's pretty rough. Yeah, that's that's very rough. So I thought it was interesting um, seeing Ford's reaction to when Weir is saying that uh, Ford is going to lead a rescue mission to get Shepard. So he's saying this to Rodney. And, and of course, you know, Ford's in the room. And then you see Ford's face and it's like his mouth is open and he looks very concerned and fearful. Like, is this the first time you heard about this? I. What I got out of the way they drew Ford's face as Weir is saying this is, at least the way I interpret it, it's like Ford is like, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to do what? (laughs) I thought that was just his determined face. (laughs) Okay, I don't know. As opposed opposed to earlier uh, at the top of that page, you see uh, McKay's Joker face. I don't know Ah! what's going on (laughs) Oh, when he when he's saying yes, probably just a few at a time, uh, but a slow, steady supply. That one, or oh, you're looking at a different page. Oh no, no, no. Okay, you okay? You're saying the one where the where he's saying, "Oh yeah, who's a genius? Yeah, who's, who's a, a genius?" genius? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's all now, pale and he has this weird smile. Exactly. That does kind of look like Joker. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah, but but that's so Rodney. He's got an ego a mile long. And he has absolutely no compunction about letting everybody know about it. So I thought that was funny. I, yeah, I like that was funny. I mean, it's definitely fitting in for his character. Yeah. So, so definitely I think Rodney was handled very well. Weir was handled very well in the writing. Uh, very consistent. Uh, and, and, and Shepard, too. And, 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 Ta- and Taylor. Although Taylor does almost nothing in this issue. Or the, I don't, this I don't even line. think she's in this one. This issue. Well, she may not be. No, she's in there. She's in the background. But she doesn't say anything. She doesn't do anything. I mean, and when she does say and do things, it isn't that much. So whatever. Right. Um, So Ford, though. So Ford, he's a young guy. He's in his 20s, right? He's only a lieutenant. Uh, But he's like like the right-hand guy to Shepard. And really, Shepard was the right-hand guy to Colonel whatever his name was, who was played by uh, the guy that played the T-1000. So the lead military guy got killed in the first episode uh shepherd has to step up and and this guy needs to step up too um lieutenant ford but he does a pretty good job of stepping up um i just don't think he was uh i don't think he was as well represented in the book at least in this panel Mm. but you know whatever um so i don't know whether it's because of the actor or because they never wrote good enough stuff for him, but Ford got written out um, in maybe the third season. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly which season, but well, he was, I looked at. I, I didn't know who any of the actors were, so I yeah. had to look it up. He 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 stopped showing up in the first first season. He's oh, a regular that early? in the first season. Okay. okay, and then he becomes like a recurring character he, in like the second season, and then he, yeah. he doesn't show up again until the last. Yeah, so according he was, to Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, so he, he was kind of a bland character, quite frankly. And again, was it the actor? Was it the... Uh, it's like May- Mayfair. 
Mayfair in uh, Enterprise. I always thought he was kind of a oh, Mayweather character. or Mayweather. No, okay. Who, who, who's who's the pilot guy? The young young pilot guy. Mayweather. Oh, okay, Mayweather. Great. Um, so, and so I, I never really got a lot of. Uh, I was never that engaged with Mayweather, and I was never that engaged with Ford either. They just didn't mm. put enough spice into his writing or something. I don't know. Uh, but you know, they 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 made him a they made him a villain, and then uh, kind of a villain character when he was like partially uh, wraithized or something like that. And then spoilers, um, jeez. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> and and then basically they they brought Jason Moma in. Oh, so, is that is that what he kind of does? Well, yeah. I mean, Jason Moma is definitely Worf. He's definitely Teal'c, who is an SG one character. But he's also kind of like you know, the second banana to um, Shepard in the yeah. action department, which is what Ford was in the first season. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Anyway, so that's that's him. Yeah, okay. I just wanted to comment on Ford. Yeah, no, I appreciate um, it because I did not know that. Yeah. I don't um, also, I what I couldn't figure out mm-hmm. is uh, what's the name of the doctor that's showing Dak around? Oh, um, yeah, that's Doc. He's, he's a Russian guy. Dr. Zelenka or something like that. Is that who he is? Okay. It's something like that. Does he uh, stay on the show for a while? Oh, yeah. He's, he's in like crazy. Uh, so, okay. so Rodney has a couple second bananas, and Zelenka is pretty much his second banana because he's – I think he's, Zelenka's in it to the end of the, of the series. And then there's mm. some other – I mean, basically all the uh, science guys uh, report up to Rodney. So uh, – so I like as a, I think he's there for the whole series. Okay. Um, because though Rodney does a lot of things, uh, like kind of like Scotty, um, he's got a whole team that also uh, fill in for him when he's on an away mission or whatever, or he just needs more, more. Uh, there's more. There's more work to be done than just Rodney can do. Gotcha. So, yeah, when you get to the end, I think it's the end of the first season, if you, if you watch that, um, definitely Zelenka and Rod, it's the, Zelenka and Rodney are doing a lot of things to uh, keep the Wraith from uh, taking over Atlantis. Okay. Anyway, kind of ruining that for you, too. Sorry. <laughs> I thought to say about this one. Yeah, I'm done too. Cool. It was a good setup, and uh, we'll see how it continuation. all shakes down. Yeah. Okay. So issue three. Okay, so this one is uh, February 2007, and um, I think everybody's the same. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Everybody's yeah, they're same. all they're all the same. All three are the same. Okay. Uh, as far as the creative team, uh, they've got I believe six covers. And again, there's a great mix of uh, drawings, paintings, and then some um, individual uh, photos. So they've got uh, Dr. Weir in a, in a single uh, solo photo cover. And then they've got a, uh, a four-person uh, group shot in front of the gate, also in another photo cover. 
Rodney repairs the Naquita generator, which powers up the Stargate. Lieutenant Ford and his team are through the gate and come out on the other side through the Kara gate. They quickly locate Shepard's down puddle jumper and find the Karens are removing uh, rubble and kind of digging the ship out of its partial burial. They see no signs of Shepard, and the Karens say they never saw Shepard. They call Weir and give status just when a nearby volcano just happens to erupt. The gate shuts down on the Atlantis side, cutting off communications. Rodney and Dr. Zelenka start working on the damaged Naquita generator, but until they can fix it, Ford is on his own. They are just barely able to get into the three operational puddle jumpers with the Karens and fly out of harm's way. They discover they lost contact with Atlantis and conclude the generator must have gone down again. They drop the Karens off and head for Vol. They detect a location in the northern hemisphere that has signs of life, so they head for it with cloaks up. They land and enter what turns out to be a cave system. While they enter deeper into the Wraith Caves, they plant C4 with remote-controlled detonators along their path. They spot Dak being taken somewhere by two Wraith, but stay on mission to find Shepard. Meanwhile, the Wraith are back to trying to break Shepard. This time, they try to use Shepard's guilt and fear to turn him to working for them. Again, they ask, where is Earth? That turns out to be the last thing the two Wraith will ever ask, as their chests explode with gunfire from three P-90s. Taylor rushes to the control panel to shut it down. Shepard is released, and shakily gets to his feet. Ford wants to get back to the ship and head for Atlantis as soon as the gate is working again, but Shepard orders the team to rescue the Karens that are still alive in the facility. Using the hand life sign detector, they find their way to where Dak is restrained to a table and screaming with at least six wraiths surrounding him. The lead wraith tells him he is paying the cost of crossing his gods. He and the two other Karen's dead bodies will be returned to his people as a warning not to screw up the next wraith fall. Shepard hears all this and is quite miffed. He takes out his miffedness by opening fire with a hail of lead aimed at the wraiths. Taylor tries to stop him, but the rest of the team joins in to the point that the wraith are mostly turned into Swiss wraith cheese. Unfortunately, wraiths are hard to kill, and there are a lot of them in the room. Taylor takes the almost dead Dak and starts to exit the room. Ford convinces Shepard to withdraw. Back in the puddle jumpers, they depart the accursed planet Vole and head for Kara. They try to set off the C4 charges with their radio detonators, but deduce the signal must be blocked somehow. Shepard opts for plan B, which he refers to as the hard way, which he's good at, and fires two of the ancient guided missiles into the installation. Between the missile's explosive payload and the C4 detonations triggered by the missile explosions, the installation goes boom quite nicely. Back at Atlantis, they get Wraith-aged Dak to the infirmary where he eventually dies. 
But with his final words, he curses Shepard for interfering with Wraithfall, since he personally has sentenced his people to death by culling. To make Shepard feel as bad as he possibly can, Dax says he is dying now, but Shepard will live on, knowing what he personally has done to kill his people. Shepard leaves the room, apparently feeling like poop. Later, Rob and Weir try to console Shepard, who was alone on a high balcony. They tell Shepard they return Dak and the two other Karens to their people and may be on their way to improving relations with them. They scanned the Karen system and there is no trace of Wraith life signs. The explosions likely got them all. They all know the Wraith are likely to return, but Weir says that they will keep an eye on the Karens. Weir tells Shepard he did the right thing in the end. Shepard said during his torture that the Wraiths said the same thing Dak did. They were too quick to tell others how they should live, and in the end, the Atlanteans bring death. Weir says, that may be true, but we all make mistakes and learn from them. In the end, Shepard drove the Wraiths out of the Karn system, and the people killed this time by the Wraiths would have died anyway as sacrifices to Wraithfall. Shepard feels a bit better after all this, but knows they cannot guarantee the Wraith will never return to Kara in the future. They need to somehow find a way to eliminate the Wraith threat, period. But not today. The end. And he's already ready to go on the next adventure. Well, hell yeah, he's the hero. He's Riker. He, he bounced back quick after feeling bad about killing all those people. Well, I mean, they did, yeah. They did make a big deal out of it. And then, right. you know, it was like the next day or maybe the second day after that, he's still Mr. Pouty guy on the on the roof. Right. On a beautiful balcony. So one thing that's nice about uh, Atlantis is it's a really cool-looking place. Right. And I think they captured that in some of these panels quite nicely. Right, because they didn't have to CG it in or however they did it on the show. <laughs> <laughs> True. All you got to do is draw it. You just got to draw it good. Exactly. Yeah, that's one of the things that on the show I don't think has aged very well is yeah. the uh, the portal effect. Every time they open the seat, the Stargate, the mm-hmm. the water thing that comes out, just, yeah. uh, it does not look good. No. Yeah, okay. I get, well, you watched it more. I haven't watched an episode in a long time, so... Yeah. Uh, sometimes when you go back to something, your memory is is fine, but then you go back to it and it's like, oh, oh, that wasn't very good, now was it? Right. But there's a limit to how much you can spend. Come on. Sure. Sure. And technology has limits. Well, and it's a and it's a TV show, right? And it was made what, 20 years ago. I mean, there are some people that actually say that Taw's special effects are primitive and suck, but I don't know. Yeah, they do. Those are pretty. Those are pretty rough. <laughs> yeah. But I remember when I was a kid, I thought TNG was like the pinnacle of CG no. or the pinnacle of special effects. And yeah. now I'm watching it going, oh, oh, those are bad. TNG is another good example. Yeah. Oh, bad. Well, not all of it, but I mean, yeah. Yeah, not all of it, but it's not great. You can't help it. It's going to be, uh, time is going to go on and. Right. Especially special effects is going to look 
worse. The ones that actually are special effects, that the way they did it, it survives over time, that's impressive. Right. When you can achieve that. And I can't think of any examples. <laughs> but I'm sure they're out there. Well, I think that... Uh... I think like the Terminator 2 and Aliens and stuff like that, the special effects there, I mean... Well, Aliens. Okay, what in Aliens? I mean, Terminator well, Terminator 2 with the uh, the metal... Well, I'm not talking about just CG. I'm just talking about using like miniatures and stuff. Because, I mean, a lot of Aliens, the those sets and stuff that they're walking through were really just miniatures that were up close to the camera while they were walking behind it to make it look like they were walking in a into a big cavern or whatever. I mean, some of that stuff's pretty pretty cool. How they got around, you know, spending more than a hand. Not, time. yeah, yeah. They didn't have to build a whole set. They just built a little set, really up close to the camera, and then it made it look like they were in a big room. They did it on okay, uh, so, Project, the motion picture too. Okay, so you're saying that they made a small uh, set, they filmed it close up, and then they filmed the people filmed the people separately on, behind blue screen or something, no, and then they combined. Think, no, I think they. No, the people were there, but they were just behind the little set. What? <laughs> yeah, well, Wait, hold on. They, behind? they also did it on... Yeah. I, I how does that work? Don't know. Movie I mean, magic. I mean, the sets are normally behind the people, right? Yeah, well, we're talking... Yeah. I mean, the camera, the people, the set. <laughs> Isn't that normally the way it works? Yeah. Okay. They did it on Star Trek The Motion Picture, too. Go, go, okay. watch, go watch how they did it. Okay. I'm pretty sure it's on the Blu-rays. Oh, okay. Magic. Well, that's, that's that's great. Cool. But yeah, no, I agree. I, agree. I mean, uh, I think practical effects always age better. Yes. Mostly. Than, yes. Uh, CG. Yeah. Because even now, CG's pretty iffy. I mean, like on the new Doctor Strange movie, every time that third eyeball showed up in his forehead, it was just like, oh, that looks so bad. Yeah. <laughs> it looks so bad. You know, a bad example was the second Matrix movie. Some of the special effects there look pretty bad. Especially yeah. when they had uh, some of the when shots they're... with the multiple uh, Agent Smiths. Yeah, when they were fighting. Fighting Neo and stuff. Right. Anyway. Yeah, very uh, video gamey looking. Yeah. With, anyway. with no weird, clear but, details. But then you have amazing examples of like The Mandalorian and some of those productions where they have basically big, huge set walls. That are having the backgrounds projected on them in real time. Mm-hmm. That, that's great. That looks. Yeah, they great. use that on uh, on the new Star Trek stuff too. So yeah, that's really great. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Anyways, back to this. Back to this. Um, I did like the end when uh, when Dak cursed him. Yeah. You, you know, I, I know you saved me. I know you feel like you did the right thing. But I'll never forgive you. But you didn't. That was such a great line. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, so you thought he was going to be like, you know, the the typical way this kind of thing ends is they, they, you know, the the guy realizes, oh, you guys did your best to save me. Thank you. Uh, But no, Uh, you guys are are poop heads and you've sentenced, sentenced my people to death. And it's very possible that they did. It's very possible he did exactly that in the long run. Because Weir talks at the end about, you know, keeping an eye on them. But really, (laughs) I mean, really, how many resources are you going to put into keeping an eye on them? And if they really send a wraith, you know, a big wraith ship in there, um, 
they're not in a position to do anything about it at this point. They don't have ships there yet. So all they've got are, like, machine guns. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, and the puddle jumpers uh, with their, you know, photon torpedoes, uh, guided photon torpedoes. But really, that's all they got. So, so I take it that uh, eventually they can drive these puppers without being attuned to the um, psychic network or whatever. Because I thought that was a bit, I, like I said, I haven't got past more than maybe five okay. or six episodes. Well, again, this is early, right. so um, so eventually they're able to do away where they're able to do gene therapy on other people so that they get. Uh, the abilities that that Shepard has. Okay, I did see the episode where they were doing that, but I, it didn't seem like it worked very well. So I didn't know if that was well. They were still working how, on it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Shepard Shepard had the best command of any of it. Um, th- there is a chair uh, in Atlantis that controls the bigger version of those photon torpedoes that guards Atlantis itself, so that when hive ships do eventually get to Atlantis. Shepard is able to get into the chair and control the the big daddy versions of those photon torpedoes and shoot them at the Wraith. Um, so again, he's got control over it. And, and there's, a, there's a one episode where Dr. Beckett has had some of the gene therapy and he has to try to control, uh, you know, use the chair and control the, uh, the weapon system that, that Atlantis has because Shepard's someplace else. And mm-hmm. so it was all dealing with that, that gene therapy. And, and eventually gotcha. they're, they're able to get control over it. But they're, here they have, they have four, four shuttles coming down, each one piloted by somebody that just happened to have it? Or do you think they already had the gene therapy? I don't think they had the gene fer- therapy. Uh, and that's a very good question. How could they even pilot the, the shuttle? Now, they were able to, so okay. But I think I have the feeling... It was Shepard that actually could effectively uh, fire the weapons, hmm. and he did. So, well, I mean, when they couldn't get the C four to go off, right? So, I mean, it's like most shows; it's not crystal clear, it's not okay. airtight. You can always okay. find issues with what they're saying. Gotcha. So, yeah, I do agree. They're, they're yeah, but it's really cool when they finally are able to connect again with the SGC. Anyway, you got to see okay. that. Uh, the three-part episode, The Siege. you got to see that, episode, that, that those three episodes. They're pretty good. All right. Okay, and then my last question about this issue, or maybe it's not really a question. <laughs> it's probably a question. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's about the Wraith themselves. I mean, we mm-hmm. saw in the pilot episode where, I mean, even their arms and stuff were living after they got shot off. Um, does that ever come back about them being that invulnerable that even parts of them can stay alive? Uh, they were always very, very hard to kill. And depending upon what the story needed would tell you how hard they were to kill. Because okay. <laughs> even in this book, I mean, when they save Shepard, three guys with P90s are able to kill two wraiths. Right. Right? Pretty decisively. They shoot them in the back, they blow out their chests, they go down. No muss, no fuss. Then at the end, you've got, what, like five or six guys with P90s, machine guns, opening up fire on some number of wraiths in that, in that particular panel when they're torturing Dak 
Right. I, I counted six, maybe seven of them. And maybe yeah. there were more in the room. But yeah, there was more, yeah. But there you know, there's at least six six people with machine guns like pummeling these these guys and they're not it wasn't enough to bring them all down. Yeah. And in fact they're still taking hits and shooting at you at the same time. Uh huh. Exactly. So it didn't even it didn't even throw off their aim. <laughs> well, I mean, that's another thing because they didn't actually acknowledge anybody getting hit, so right. they didn't let the they the humans that is, right. they didn't let the the action slow down with one or two of the uh, the away team members getting hit. Uh, they just kept they got Dak and the whole team seemed to get away. Even though you're right, the Wraith were returning fire, right. some of the Wraith. Yeah, I've read enough Star Trek comic books. I don't, I don't, I don't get too upset when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. They somehow escaped. Yeah, I, I did think that the action shots looked really good. The artwork is really good. Yeah, throughout. Speaking of the artwork, can I point something out? Mm-hmm. Now this may just be me. I believe I have spotted some inspirations for for some of the Karens. Oh wow! Okay. One of the Karens that were unearthing the puddle jumper, and they have an extended conversation with Ford and his team, uh, Taylor, etc. And I'm looking at one of the guys that does a lot of the talking, and he looks like a bit like Brendan Fraser from the Mummy movies, the 1999 Mummy movies. Yeah, I could totally see it. And then, towards the end, when the volcano blows, they show the guy that looks like Brendan Fraser. And then next to him is another guy who has his like mouth open and is reacting to the fact that the the volcano's exploding. And he looks just like at least to me anyway, he looks like um the other actor, uh John Hanna, who was also in the mummy movie. Uh he was like the second banana to the Brendan Fraser yeah, he uh, was, Indiana uh, Jones character. He was the brother of the The girl? Rachel Vice, yeah. Okay, there you go. So, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm off. You're absolutely, the, this pictures that you sent me, wow, you are absolutely right. It, right. It definitely the hairline and, and even that facial expression with the, the slack jaw all right. definitely looks like that guy. Right. No, I think you're, I think you're right. Yeah. So I, I know a lot of artists, or at least I have read how a lot of artists have said they get a lot of their ideas sometimes from, uh, you know, for, for different characters, what they look like from actors. So, I th- that's yeah. my theory. Uh, the, the, the artist had recently seen the Mummy movie and said, oh, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to get the faces this way. Anyway. No, I, th- I would not have saw that, but it definitely looks like that. Okay, cool. That's funny. Um, I want to make a general comment about how much the... And this is not necessarily a comment on this on these three issues, but I just want to. There's the general conversation where Stargate borrows lots of things from Star Trek, Um, and of course, Star Trek borrowed lots of things from things that came before it, like Forbidden Planet and things to come. And you know, there you go. So everybody, everybody borrows from each other, but um, some of the things that Stargate borrowed were puddle jumpers are kind of like. Starfleet shuttles, and they've got cloaking devices, which is obviously Star Trek. Um, and they, they do have transporters, um, technology in the SG franchise. 
Um, and they have away teams that constantly get cut off from the ship slash Atlantis. So they're on their own to get out of a tough situation, you know, to, to, to level up the amount of uh, tension. Um, and of course, that always happens at suspiciously convenient times, which happened at least twice in this comic book story where the team was, uh, was cut off from. And, and I, could, I could go on for more things. And then that got me into the point of saying, not only do they, do they borrow tropes, and by the way, they have shields and stuff too in, in the Stargate ships. And by the way, the first Earth ship in Stargate uh, was called the Prometheus, but uh, Colonel Jack O'Neill wanted to call it the Enterprise. I just want to Aww. mention that. And then, and then the, the female character kept on saying, no, sir, we can't call it the Enterprise. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. That's awesome. Um, tip of the hat. Um, but they also have used a poop load of uh, Star Trek actors. Yeah, that's what, that's what I've been seeing in these right. comic books. So you, you commented about Robert Picardo. Right. I was uh, really shocked to see that. Right. Um, but also, can I, can I give you a list? That I sure. happen to get from Google, my own memory and Google. Google. All right. Okay. So Connor Trenier, Trip Tucker, he was actually a regular uh, in one of the later seasons, and he popped up. I, he may have popped up over two seasons. So Trip was in, or Connor Trenier was in a lot. Robert Picardo was in it a lot. Marina Sirtis was in an episode or two. Armin Shimmerman uh, did a guest role. Uh, Ronnie Cox. Was had an ongoing role uh, as a senator who wanted to shut down the SG uh, uh, program. Uh, and he he makes such a he, he just makes such a great poop head. Uh, Tony <laughs> Todd, of course, Tony Todd, whether he was in Star Trek or not, would have been in the, in in Stargate. He's just a great actor that pops up everywhere. Right. Uh, Jolene Blaylock, uh, John Delancey, Dwight Schultz, Schultz, of course, Barkley. Call Meany had a meaty um, role that went over many episodes as a leader of a particularly materialistic or not uh, militaristic planet of humans. Hmm. Uh, Saul Rubinick, who played uh, Kivas Fajo in Next Gen. Um, uh, Rene Azurbanjo Choi's. Oh, no. How do you? I don't even know how to pronounce his last name. Right. Um, Dean Stockwell, who was in both Star Trek and Next Gen and uh, and uh, SG, but so, but he's so big, he, he's in everything. Sure. Uh, and then tons of less lesser known act, actors. Uh, so uh, Eric Avari, who was in the original SG movie, he's one of the natives leaders on the Sand hmm. Planet. Uh, Larry Drake who actually is well-known, but, I mean, he did guest-starring stints on both franchises. Uh, Wallace Shawn. Did, did I get that right? Wallace Shawn? I think so. That's the guy who, uh, you know, uh, that's inconceivable on uh, oh, yeah, 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 that yeah. guy. You know, so he was always... Uh, uh, the Grand Nagus. The Grand Nagus, exactly. And he, he had at least one role in the SG franchise. Paul... Paul McGillian, who is who plays Doctor um, Doctor Beckett, 
in Stargate Atlantis. He was in the Star Trek 1990 movie. Small part, but he was in it. David Ogden Steers. Alan Ruck. You know who David Ogden Steers is. I don't think I need to explain him. Uh, actually, I don't. Oh, uh, David Ogden Steers is, uh, was it originally in MASH? Oh, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. then he was in a really good Next Gen episode, and he was also in uh, a series of episodes in uh, Atlantis. He also played uh, uh, um, Martian Manhunter in a... In a uh, Animated? Nope. Oh. Live action. Uh, no. <laughs> Justice League uh, movie with, uh, with Rafi. She was uh, fire in there. Oh, my... She played... Fire. Oh, you're kidding me. So yeah. obviously David Ogden Steers was in better shape back then. No, not really. Oh! He, he looks bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, okay, I'm going to wrap this up. Alan Ruck, who is Captain Harriman. Right. And then another guy just threw in there, Leon Rippey, uh, who you'd know him if you saw him, but you know he's not a particularly uh, known actor. Ton, tons of lesser known actors have been in both. Sure. Okay, that's the end of my end of my list. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good list. Yeah. Now, I I I might get around to watching some more. I mean, I did enjoy what I watched, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I'm glad I finally got to watch some of it. But with with so much other good stuff on, it's it's hard to exactly. It's hard to like. Let's not watch Picard. Let's watch uh, <sighs> let's watch an old episode of Stargate. There you go. That's a tough call. It is. It's t- There's so many things to see these days, especially with the resurgence of Star Trek on Paramount Plus. Right, and we've been going back through um, watching Enterprise. So, oh well, <laughs> if you're going to rewatch an entire series, uh, yeah, that will keep you busy. <laughs> Which it is your favorite, so it's a good show. It is a good show. It's just there's. It's got some stiff competition for the title of favorite. Right. Rewatch it. I bet you'll change your tune. Mm, I doubt it. But maybe. Anything else for this issue? No. Um, I don't have anything else for this issue. But I do think that uh, Star Trek Comic Book Review Presents should revisit the Stargate universe at some point in the future. Absolutely. I agree. 100%. But it seems like next week we're going to be doing – we're going to be back to Star Trek. So, cool. Uh, yeah, so next week we're going to be back to Star Trek, and we're going to be doing Lower Decks number two and Picard Stargazer number two. Cool. I'm particularly looking forward to the next Picard installment. I know. It was so good. Mm-hmm. Quite good. Yeah. So we'll be back next week, and then maybe maybe once we're caught up with the Star Treks, we can get to another – Another uh, Star Trek comic book presents, and we'll pick another franchise. Cool. Sounds great. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on the review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. 
or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.